2: Welcome back to the New Books Network. My name is Adam Bobeck, and I'm a PhD candidate in cultural anthropology at the University of Leipzig. I am unbelievably excited today to be talking to Graham Harman about his new book, Skirmishes. Uh, Professor Graham Harman is distinguished professor of philosophy at the Southern California Institute of Architecture, or SCI-ARC, and is one of the key figures in both object-oriented ontology and speculative realism. He is the author of such books as Guerrilla Metaphysics, uh, The Quadruple Object, Immaterialism, and Object-Oriented Ontology, A New Theory of Everything. Today, we'll be discussing one of his latest books, which I already mentioned, Skirmishes with Friends, Enemies, and Neutrals, published in 2020 with Punctum Books. Professor Harmon, welcome to the show. Thanks very much, Adam. Uh, To start off, could you tell us a little bit about the genesis of this book?
1: Sure. It was a very long genesis. It may have been 10 years ago or more that I first started thinking about a book of this sort. And the title Skirmishes came relatively quickly to me is what the title of this book would be. And uh, there are a couple of things behind the genesis of this book. The first of them is that at least in the continental philosophical tradition, there's not a lot of horizontal dialogue between people. We tend to get trapped in bubbles where we are speaking privately to one of the past greats of our discipline, And people often don't pay much attention to what people are doing in the other bubbles addressed to these greats. Uh, Whereas in analytic philosophy, I like the fact that people are in discussion with each other more constantly. Uh, And I wanted to recreate something like that in our subfields. So that's the first thing. The other thing is that as Triple O became more prominent over the years, I started picking up more enemies and more uh, one-off criticisms on social media. And what happens often with these is that someone will make a critique of triple O on Twitter, and then 25 people will basically say, yeah, you know, cheering it on as if that's a death blow, when many times it's either an easy thing to answer, or it's, it's something I've answered five or six times already, and these people just didn't see it. So this was a chance for me to uh, respond in print to some of these uh, criticisms, especially the ones that keep coming up over and over again. And I toyed with many different formats for this book. And then finally, uh, way back in 2014, that was the year that the first, probably the first four books about speculative realism appeared. Those were Tom Sparrow's The End of Phenomenology, Stephen Chaviro's book, um, Peter Grattan's book, and then Peter Wolfendale's book. And so I thought, okay, that's, that can be the base of skirmishes. So I can do a long response to each of those four books, and then a second half of the book where I'm responding to articles or shorter critiques. Now, what happened in practice is that, you know, ideally, I, I could have written a response to those books in 2015 and gotten it published right away. I already had a contract with, with Puncta back then, I think. But, um, but what happens when you're a writer is you can't always choose what to do when. Um, things come up, and you have to do those things first. And so what happened that I didn't get to, to sit down and work seriously on skirmishes until 2019 after moving to California. And once I did, I, I wrote it pretty quickly, in about six weeks. Um, so that's the story. I
2: should, uh, I should mention here for listeners who don't know much about Triple O, that they can find multiple lectures and podcasts that you've done on the internet, where you introduce all these ideas that we're going to be talking about today. And you lay out the key concepts of Triple O in a super accessible way. So listeners might want to turn to those if they don't know much about Triple O. Alternatively, they could pick up one of your many books that also introduce all these ideas very nicely. Uh, But today, when we're talking about skirmishes, we're really just going to be getting into the thick of things, I think. Uh, So I'd like to focus specifically on a couple of chapters, and then you can just outline those chapters for listeners of the show. And I'm actually going to start with the second chapter, which is on Stephen Shaviro's book, The Universe of Things. And you start this chapter by listing your three disagreements with Shaviro. And this first difference relates to the difference between beauty and the sublime. So can you talk about that a little bit? Sure. Uh, Stephen Shaviro is an old friend at this point,
1: even though we disagree on most philosophical things. He's always a pleasure to engage with. The difference between beauty and the sublime. Well, as Shaviro sees it, Triple O is too beholden to the discourse on the sublime and it's easy to see why he thinks this, uh, because Triple O talks about that which is deep and hidden and isn't directly available to human cognition of any sort. Uh, and, and he wants to shift the focus to beauty, which he interprets in Whitehead's sense of patterned contrasts. So something that isn't deep and hidden and awesome in the way that Kant's Sublime is. Uh, my, my answer to this charge is twofold. One of them is that uh, Triple O isn't really a discourse on the sublime. And the reason for that is that the sublime in Kant, he's talking about two forms, the mathematical sublime, which is infinite size, and the dynamical sublime, which is infinite power. Like The difference between the vast starry sky at night and a tsunami or a 9.0 earthquake would be the difference between the mathematical sublime and the dynamical sublime. The problem with Kant's sublime from a triple O standpoint is that both are effectively infinite. Uh, And that's not what uh, the aesthetic is about in the case of triple O. Yes, it has uh, the aesthetics in the triple O sense has something to do with the sublime in the sense that it's withdrawn and never made accessible. But I would argue that this is the second point. The same is already true of Kant's beauty. You are in, in, in critique of judgment written by Kant. You already can't paraphrase beauty, or say exactly what makes it beautiful. So there's something elusive about it already. And the same point was made, by the way, by Jacques Ranciere, a philosopher I don't usually have a lot in common with. He's also pointed out that you don't need to to shift to the sublime, that beauty is enough. Uh, Actually, I also employ here Timothy Morton's concept of hyperobjects. Uh, This discussion on infinity, the first thing that happened in recent continental philosophy is that... uh, Badiou, and after him, Mea Su, used Georg Cantor's idea of the transfinite to talk about how there's no largest infinity. The whole is not. There are many different transfinite numbers of different magnitudes. Uh, in a way, Timothy Morton performed the reverse operation. He said that what we call infinity is a screen for many different, very large finite numbers. And he brought this up in connection with global warming, that um, uh, Tim likes the joke that when people talk about infinity, it sounds like kids on the playground arguing and saying, Googleplex to beat each other, We're trying to pick an ever higher number. And he says, that's very easy. It makes us feel powerful that we are such massive cognitive beings that we can posit these huge numbers. When in fact, what's really scary are very large, finite numbers. Try counting up to 100,000. Or try thinking about the fact that carbon dioxide is going to take however many tens of thousands of years to naturally come out of the atmosphere once we put it there. That's what's really threatening. And this is a little closer to what Triple O is doing, because every withdrawn thing is of a different magnitude and of a different quality, which isn't really true of of Kant's sublime. It's hard to distinguish between the different forms of sublime for Kant. How is a tsunami different from an earthquake? How is one tsunami different from another? There there are different magnitudes there, and the the idea of the sublime can't quite address those. And so in a way, I I turned to Morton to... uh, allow us to quantify these things in some elusive, vague way that is still nonetheless finite.
2: Yeah. The, the So the second point between you and Shaviro is his argument that Triple O is static. And so he wants to uh, make this Whiteheadian or Deleuzian argument, according to him, uh, for process and becoming and, challenge triple O on this point of stasis. And so can you talk a little bit about your response to this?
1: Sure. The first thing I should do is try to break apart Whitehead and Deleuze here, because that's the background to much of this. Not just Shaviro, but also Isabel Stengers, who has written a very uh, famous and very worthy book on Whitehead uh, from Harvard University Press, I believe. Uh, Both like to link Whitehead and Deleuze. And you often hear this phrase, process philosophy. And just about anybody gets thrown into that basket. The problem as I see it is that there are two very different kinds of schools grouped under the process philosophy label. One of them, the more perhaps the, more, the better known one, let's say, is that of the, the Bergsonian model where time is this continuous flux. You cannot talk about an instant of time even. Time is not cinematic. It's not made of frames. You cannot cut down time into a smallest unit of time. Uh, and here, too, you find Deleuze and you, you maybe find Simon Dahl and you find other people in that tradition. William James, maybe, who was so close to Berkson in many ways. That's one group. And that's fine. You can call them the process philosophers. Whitehead and Latour are in a completely different basket as I see it. And I've had this argument with Shaviro many times. Whitehead and Latour do talk about change, although I would argue that every philosopher talks about change other than Parmenides and maybe Plato under some readings, uh, Whitehead and Latour are philosophers of the frozen instant. It's simply that they have those frozen instants dying and being replaced constantly over and over again, you know, trillions of times per second or whatever. You can't even quantify it. It's Whitehead, remember, calls actual entities, actual occasions, which means that they exist for a single occasion. And so, uh, Whitehead and Latour come from the occasionalist tradition. And we'll, we'll get back to this later when we talk about vicarious causation. But I want to talk here a little uh, about, uh, vi- uh, sorry, occasionalism, just to give a brief taste of this. Occasionalism is well known from 17th century philosophy. Some people started with Malebranche. I would actually start it with Descartes uh, because in Descartes, there's no mind-body communication possible without the mediation of gods. Um, it actually starts earlier. It starts in, in uh Muslim religious thoughts seven centuries before, maybe six centuries before Descartes, uh, where the question is uh, a certain group of very radical uh, theologians in Islam, starting with uh, Al-Ashri in uh, Basra, what is now Iraq, uh, want to read a specific passage in the Quran in a very extreme way. That passage has to do with the Battle of Badr where The vastly outnumbered Muslims defeated the infidels. And uh, there's a passage in the Quran that reads something like, you think you have thrown the stone, but in fact it is Allah who threw the stone. Now the the more orthodox way of reading that is that that was a miraculous event. God intervened in the Battle of Badr so that the Muslims would win. The Asherites read that more extremely to mean all things are caused directly by gods. And so not only is God the only creator, which all monotheists think, they also think God is the only causal agent, and so that it is somehow blasphemous to think that a rock or a person's hand can cause things directly. All those things have to go through, through God. And, uh, one strength of their version of occasionalism is that this was true even of inanimate interactions. It wasn't just human actions that were mediated by God, but everything at all that happens, such as fire burning cotton, one of the great examples of medieval Islamic thought that I use a lot of my own work. Uh, is that uh, fire does not cut burn the cotton directly. The proximity of the fire and cotton is simply the occasion for God to make a, a burning event happen. Malebranche brings that inanimate dimension to the problem back in, which Descartes had excluded. And then you see similar issues unfolding in Spinoza, Leibniz, and Berkeley, where somehow God is, is responsible in different ways for the way things happen in the world. Okay, so now people tend to laugh at this today because they say, oh, how naive. God is intervening all the time. Only naive theists believe that. We're beyond that. We're all brave atheists now. Okay, well, the problem with that attitude is that you can view Kant and Hume, who are still the bedrock of contemporary philosophy in many ways, you can view Kant and Hume as occasionalists by different means. Instead of God being the one with the monopoly on all causation, the human mind has the monopoly on all causation. Uh, In Hume's case, because causation is merely a matter of habit or customary conjunction, we don't know if it really exists. And in Kant's case, more explicitly, because cause and effect is a category of the human understanding. So um, occasionalism, which I would say is the great contribution of Islamic thought to to European philosophy, uh, is still very much at the center of things. It's it's the motivation for uh, all of modern European philosophy and many of its successors. It's just that we have tended to get rid of the inanimate side of the problem. We let science deal with inanimate interactions. Philosophy, since certainly since Kant, maybe since Hume, has been stationed at this position where all we can talk about is the thought-world relation. So even a theory of objects, pe- people tell me, how can you do object-oriented philosophy? Don't you know that Meinong already did that? Okay, but the thing is, Meinong is talking about all the ways we can refer to an object. He's not talking about object-object interactions because that seems crazy to people today because, oh, science already does that. What can philosophy say about that that science doesn't? Well, science talks about inanimate objects in terms of their uh, existence at a point in space-time moving in a certain way. It's a mathematizable way of treating of inanimate objects and their interaction. It doesn't solve the metaphysical problems of causation and other such problems that triple O raises. But that was a digression from your question. Um,
2: I'm there's, to say, a, okay, yeah, sure. there's a good point here which is when you're talking about a, a, a occasionalism as you point out in the book multiple times there are really two types of occasionalism that are important there's spatial occasionalism and temporal occasionalism and so here when we're talking about Whitehead and Deleuze you're sort of splitting them along this spatial occasionalist temporal occasionalist line
1: well um, Whitehead is certainly a spatial and a temporal occasionalist. Let let me uh, clarify that for the listeners. Uh, There are two different kinds of things that can happen in occasionalism, and sometimes you find both of them. Sometimes you only find one. Uh, I'd say the main line of occasionalism is the idea that two things cannot engage in direct causal interaction. There has to be some special third term that does it. Initially, it's God. And then in modern philosophy, it's the human mind. Temporal occasionalism, which is the even more radical step, uh, that I don't know if you ever find temporal without spatial occasionalism. I don't know if it's possible, but temporal occasionalism is the idea that everything vanishes every instance unless God is, is recreating it. And that's what you find in Islamic occasionalism and and selected versions of Western occasionalism. Or I should say European. I shouldn't say Western because I think Islamic philosophy is part of Western philosophy since it comes out of Greek philosophy and comes out of the same prophetic tradition. So I consider Western philosophy to mean European and North American plus Islamic that's another, another story. Uh, in Whitehead's case, you have both elements. You have the fact that, um, things, uh, cannot, first of all, you have the thing, the fact that things cannot interact direct. Uh, no, let's start with the temporal occasionalism with Whitehead. The fact that things only exist for a single occasion. Uh, if a hair falls off my head, I'm a different person, according to Whitehead, because a thing is concretely defined in terms of its prehensions, meaning its relations. And since relations are changing all the time, Everything's changing all the time. The, uh, the spatial occasionalism, the causal occasionalism in Whitehead comes from the fact that one thing objectifies another using eternal objects, which are contained in God. And so you look at my shirt, you see blue, I see blue. That's because the eternal object blue is contained in God, and we're indirectly passing through God to see this shirt and see it as blue. In fact, God sees all the possible eternal objects in this shirt. God sees all the colors of the rainbow in this shirt, uh, and t- We are too stupefied to realize that they're all there as well. That's one way of, of explaining it. Latour, uh, who is an underrecognized disciple of Whitehead, he, he got his Whitehead through Isabel Stengers, but Latour has uh, pushed it in his own way. Uh, Latour says in Irreductions, one of his early works, the appendix to the pasteurization of France, that a thing happens once in one time and place only. So he also has this idea of the actual occasion, that a thing is defined by all of its interactions with other things. And so things don't really stay the same from one instant to the next either. Both Whitehead and Latour are anti-substance to the core. And uh, uh, whether or not Latour has a causal occasionalism, well, actually he does. But it's a little more sophisticated than Whitehead's, I would say. Because Latour is one of the first to say... It can't be God. I mean, Latour is a, a practicing Catholic and really very much a believer. And yet he doesn't draw on Catholicism for direct solutions to his philosophical problems. Uh, you, you can see a Catholic influence in the background of his work, but he doesn't ever say, oh, the Virgin Mary does that. Or, you know, this is, this is transubstantiation. He, do- he doesn't use the direct elements of Catholic thought as philosophical solutions. They're more there in the background as a, a kind of stylistic influence. Uh, what Latour says is that that uh, every, causal, sorry, every causal interaction has a local mediator. Don't go all the way to God. Don't go, don't go to the human mind as the causal mediator. It's always local. And so famously, in Pandora's Hope, he has that chapter about Julio, Frédéric Joliot-Curie, the son-in-law of the Curies, who tried unsuccessfully to get France to invest in the atomic bomb project, uh, but then France was knocked out of the war very early and couldn't pursue it. And Latour writes there about how... Uh, Politics and neutrons seem to have no connection. Neutrons were a new discovery scientifically at that time by Chadwick in, I guess, 1932, and no one suspected they had a political meaning until slow neutron fission was discovered by Fermi uh, to be the best way to do it. And then suddenly neutrons are a political issue. In France, it was Joliot who linked those two. And then in Prince of Networks, my book on Latour, I talk about the fact that there's still a problem because if Joliot mediates politics and neutrons, who mediates? jolio's relation to politics and who mediates Julio's relation to neutrons and you're going to have an infinite regress unless you come up with a solution which i see that you're going to ask about later so maybe i'll leave it leave it to there
2: well maybe we can we can now use this as an opportunity to pivot back to shaviro because the point here is that shaviro is critiquing triple o for being static and he's embracing whitehead for being a a, a philosopher of process and of becoming right and so Yes, I, I, Shaviro, like many
1: others, and there, there are a couple of new philosophers publishing now on these issues. Thomas Nail is one in America. He writes about, a lot about being in flux. And another guy from Estonia named Rain Rouds, that's spelled R-E-I-N-R-A-U-D. He's got a book, I think, called Being in Flux that's coming out about now or maybe came out last week. Anyway, so the flux argument is is eternally popular. Uh, Rosie Beratati is another who, who makes that case, of course, from a Deleuzian standpoint. Uh, I think the solution is too extreme. It's, it's a we all want to account for change, right? Even Aristotle, the philosopher of substance par excellence, you could read his whole philosophy as being a way to explain change in motion. It doesn't follow that to explain motion, you have to say everything is constantly moving all the time. Nothing is Heraclitian river where nothing stays the same ever this gets you into problems. And one example you can find in Thomas Nail's work because Thomas Nail makes an interesting philosophical case for flux. And then he says, for example, look at immigrants. We have so much migration going on now. Everyone's moving around the world and it's only going to increase. Okay. Yes, but that shouldn't be connected with his metaphysics of flux because if flux is absolutely everywhere, then immigrants shouldn't exemplify it any better than someone who's been sitting on an antebellum plantation for 14 generations. Um, Because flux is everywhere. You shouldn't, it shouldn't be that one example of it is better than another, right? Because if it's an ontological category, you can't also have special versions of it. And so they end up counting flux twice. And it's never clear how or why they do that. Uh, The really interesting problem of motion, I think, is how things remain the same despite changing and why certain moments of change are especially important or interesting and others are trivial. And uh, I I simply don't think that uh, saving some features of the classical notion of substance commits you to stasis uh, politically or otherwise. Um, You you need some enduring thing there for time to make any sense at all. Kant talked about this. Husserl shows this, uh, that this is what time is really about. And so I think shooting the moon and going to absolute flux right from the start is not the way to do it. Aristotle addresses this. He says something like, the idea that everything is changing is false, although it's less false than the idea that everything's staying the same. So Aristotle has a a slight preference for Heraclitus over over Parmenides there. Motion isn't an illusion. It's just not as ubiquitous as these philosophers of flux think. Whereas Shaviro thinks uh, if you have any stasis whatsoever, if anything lasts at all, then you've somehow committed the mortal sin of, of stasis. Uh, so that's, that's a big difference between us.
2: Right. And then the, the third difference here is related to uh, panpsychism, which is, of course, a topic that comes up a lot with Triple O. So let's, let's get into panpsychism. What, can you talk a bit about why you're not signing on to panpsychism as it stands? Sure.
1: It's a very interesting topic. Panpsychism is the idea that everything in the universe, not just humans and animals, has a psyche. It perceives. This, is, this has become big for a couple of reasons. One is that in analytic philosophy, it started to become somewhat respectable through David Chalmers and Galen Strawson. Uh, David Chalmers in the mid-90s wrote his, his masterwork, The Conscious Mind. It's a great read. I'd recommend it to everybody. And he considers in that book whether a thermostat might be conscious because it's somehow reacting to its environment. And, um, Galen Strawson makes a somewhat different argument that I'm somewhat less sympathetic to, but it's very interesting nonetheless. Now you have people in physics saying this is going to end up being the solution to everything, right? That everything is conscious. Now, of course, I deeply support this for tactical reasons, in the sense that any assault on the thought world dualism that's been installed in modernity is is music to my ears. I call this taxonomy, the idea that there are only two kinds of things in the universe, human thought and everything else. Um, Completely implausible when you consider what a minor species we are. They have reasons for saying it because they think that the human thought part is immediately given to us and everything else is indirectly given to us. And therefore, there's at least an epistemological duality, if not an ontological one. But uh, I love the fact that panpsychism is pushing back on that kind of boring modern dualism. The problem I have with it is that I don't think that... Mm -hmm. So Shaviro points out it can get you branded a crackpot. And then, of course, Shaviro points it out and then he goes on to embrace it anyway. And I, I admire that. And at times I have embraced it. But um, I don't think that everything perceives insofar as it exists. I think everything perceives insofar as it relates. And for Shaviro, those are one and the same, because he thinks everything's relating all the time. I don't think everything's relating all the time. I think there's a whole class of objects called dormant objects, which exist without relating to anything at any given moment. Uh, How do they exist? They exist because their components have formed into a larger emergent whole, that has different properties not found in the components. And it also has retroactive effects on the components, but it's not necessarily relating to anything outside. Sometimes you, you say the conditions are here. The opportunity is, is there for such and such to happen. And then it doesn't happen. Well, I interpret that as meaning that the objects were in place for a thing to happen. And then the objects never met. That would be a case of dormant objects, uh, as long as they're not relating to anything else. Uh, that's a controversial topic from my article, Time, Space, Essence, and Ados from back in 2010. But, um, as for panpsychism, I think a thing only is, is psychic insofar as it relates, because what happens is when two things relate, they form a third object. And then that relation occurs on the interior of the larger third object, that larger third object that they form conditions the way they're able to, to interact with each other. And for me, that's where psyche happens. And it may happen that most objects or the vast majority of objects are engaged in psychic relations at any given moment. But for me, there are always some objects that are not engaged in relations and those are not psychic. For psyche, you need a relation. Otherwise, the thing just exists. And this relates to um, the difference between first and third person uh, consciousness, which is one of the big debates in the philosophy of mind. Uh, Third person scientific descriptions refer to an objective description of your brain states at this time or your behavioral states and dealing with some object, And there's a whole school of philosophy of mind that says, no, you need to talk about first person descriptions, uh, first person experience. And I say, neither of those is fundamental. You have to go to the zero person perspective because the problem with third person and first person is they're both descriptions. And for triple O, everything resists full description, which means what's really you is not your first person experience. It's your zero person reality And your first-person experience is somewhat helpless to understand your zero-person reality, which is why psychoanalysis exists. We never get a grip on ourselves, really. So um, there are a number of issues entangled there, but I'm not willing to embrace panpsychism, even though I'm a tactical ally all the way to the end. I want to see them win most of their battles, and then I can fight them at the end once they win.
2: This, I think this uh, brings us to the final difference you have with, uh, with Shaviro. And this is what you call in the book the key philosophical difference between you and Shaviro, which is relationality. That's right. Uh, and you, you've touched on it quite a bit, but I mean, I think it would be good to, to really hammer it home. What, is the, what are the differences between you and Shaviro on this topic?
1: This is the Whiteheadian and Shaviro talking. Uh, Whitehead's philosophy is a relationality to the core as is Latour's, and Latour is a friend of mine, and I've sparred with him on that point. Uh, relationality cannot exhaust its terms. If relationality, if a thing were nothing more than its current relational setup with all other things, change would be impossible, because a thing would already be fully expressed. There would be no surplus. There would be no, I don't like the idea of potentiality, but there would there would be no potentiality. Uh Aristotle actually addressed this way back in the metaphysics when he, when he responds to his rivals, the Megarians, who are not well known today, but they were big rivals of his at the time. Megara is a small town west of Athens. You pass through it on the train if you're going from Athens to the southern part of Greece, the Peloponnesus. And the Megarians believed only that which is actual exists. So someone's a house builder only if they're building a house right now. But problems start to crop up. What if someone is a master house builder who happens to be asleep? And I'm here awake incompetently trying to build a house, having no idea what to do. You can't really say that I'm a house builder and the master house builder is not. And then as soon as the house builder wakes up, they can probably start right to work and do it masterfully. So you have to make room for something that's real, but not currently expressed in the world. And Aristotle's way of doing that is potentiality. The reason I don't like the idea of potentiality is because it's recurs to relationality again as the standard of reality. It's saying once the master house builder does wake up, he can enter into relation with this wood and make it a house. I'm more interested in what that surplus is here and now, not about what it can do in the future. How do we talk about it philosophically without referring to its relations to other things? So I, I don't like the potentiality solution, but I absolutely am sure that Aristotle is right, that there has to be a surplus of some kind that is not currently expressed and that it has to be very concrete. Because even Latour, in a certain period of his career, uh, tries to find a surplus. He calls it the plasma, and I've criticized this. There's only two books I know of where he talks about this. He says somewhere that networks are only the size of the London Underground, and the plasma is the size of the rest of London as a whole. And he says, why is it that networks suddenly collapse or change so quickly? It's because of the plasma. So the plasma becomes this vast underground reservoir Maybe like Deleuze's virtual, but also like the pre-Socratic apeiron. It's the surplus responsible for all things. The problem is the the uh, Latour's plasma doesn't seem to have local zones. It just seems to be this massive lump that's responsible for everything everywhere that happens. And the problem with that is that that's not how things work. Uh, things happen because of specific surpluses. If a Uh, Latour talks about the example of a mediocre academic musician who suddenly composes a brilliant symphony without being expected. Well, okay, but I'm not going to suddenly compose a brilliant symphony because I don't have the tools to do that. So it's not like this ability to compose a brilliant symphony is located everywhere in the universe. It's simply hidden in this supposedly mediocre academic musician who actually has something going on that we're not seeing. You know, Hobbes was a typical late bloomer in intellectual history, um, one of his biographers says Hobbes is the best ex- best case for adult education he knows of, because even in middle age, Hobbes is writing a lot of crap. All right, and then it's, it's only later that he finds his voice. So, but it was Hobbes. It was not any of us, right? And Hobbes had a specific surplus that he was having a hard time expressing in his thoughts. So it has to be localized, specific, uh, even if unknowable in prose terms, right? There has to be something a causal agent that is submerged, but that could make something happen in the future, but might not. Sometimes someone never reaches their potential or quite often that happens. So, uh, I think often about the example of Michael Jordan, if he had been born 700 years earlier, when no basketball existed, uh, what would he have done? He's not even good at all sports, right? He, he failed at in his efforts at baseball. Uh, so it's not necessarily the case that Michael Jordan would have been an exceptional person no matter what, under no matter what circumstances. Um, my, my little brother, when he was an a indifferent university student at the age of 19, answering my parents' queries as to why he wasn't doing better, would say, I'm a genius in a field that hasn't been exist- uh, invented yet. And you could say 700 years ago, Michael Jordan would have been a genius in a sport that hasn't been invented yet, and it might never have been invented Um, so it's fun to imagine a counterfactual situation in which each of us will be in the best at something that doesn't exist yet. Squid game. Have you seen squid game yet? I haven't. No. Uh, well, the guy that wins is kind of a loser by normal standards. He's failing at everything. He's failing at his jobs and his marriage. Uh, and yet he ends up winning deadly, this deadly sports over 450, some other players. Um, and it's actually not all, all a positive thing for him, but, um, if not for Squid Game, we would never have known that he was a potential Squid Game champion, right? That he had the skills that it took uh, to survive that, that horrific sport. So uh, you, it makes no sense to say that a thing only is what it is. One last example, Merleau-Ponty, who's also very hot in recent decades, even among analytic philosophers, Merleau-Ponty says, the house is not the house viewed from nowhere. The house is the house viewed from everywhere. And again, I'm going to hit the gong from the gong show there. house is not made of views. Objects are not made of views. Views are possible because I enter into relation with an object that preexisted me. And that's why views are possible. The house has to be something non-view-like so that there can be any views of it at all. And that's not a popular view these days, but that's what I do for a living. I argue with people about this, so.
0: This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it... A real POS. You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com/system all lowercase to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com/system.
2: I I, I think that's a that's a solid response to Shaviro. Uh, And that brings us to this part in the chapter where you have an interlude on Levi Bryant, right? And so during the chapter on Shavir, you have this interlude where you start discussing your differences with Levi Bryant, who is, of course, one of the principal triple O colleagues of yours, along with Timothy Morton and Ian Bogost. So can you discuss your differences uh, with uh, Levi Bryant a bit? Sure. Uh, the main difference
1: between me and Levi is Levi's background is Deleuze, my background is Heidegger and phenomenology. And so we have certain philosophical orientations that le- have left their historical trace, there's a certain path dependency into how we came to Tripolo. Um, for, so for example, what I get out of Husserl primarily is the difference between sensual objects and their sensual qualities, meaning Husserl's objects for me are not real objects, they're phenomena, and yet they still have a certain endurance in comparison with their adumbrations. You turn the apple in your hands, it's still the same apple for Husserl, even though the, the colors and shapes of the apple are changing slightly every instant. Um, and I don't read that as being a real apple. Um, Husserl thinks there is no apple in itself. I do. So for me, Husserl's intentional objects are only intentional objects. That has a primitive sense to it. But yet he still discovers the second axis that is so crucial for Tripolo, the difference between an object and its qualities. For Levi, Husserl has never really meant anything. He didn't come up through phenomenology. And so there's nothing like that in Levi's version of Triple O. No difference between uh, sensual objects and sensual qualities. And there's no real fourfold in Levi's version of Triple O. People will have noticed. And that's because he doesn't have this second axis. He has the difference between uh, virtual proper being and... uh, What's the other term? Um, Something manifestations, I think. Older, and it's harder to remember people's terminology. Uh, And it was only while reading, while writing this book, sorry, that I realized that Shaviro and Bryant share one underlying assumption that I think is wrong, uh, which is that they tend to see, you know, this, uh, this triple O idea that when a thing perceives something, it doesn't perceive it directly, it's encountering a translation or a caricature. When writing this book, it it occurred to me for the first time that both Shaviro and Bryant are assuming that that's happening at something like a mental level, that objects don't have any problem colliding with each other, but somehow when you bring in something mental or what Whitehead calls presentational immediacy, that's when you get the translation issue, right? That, oh, a mind can't see things directly. A mind necessarily translates things into some distorted version of them. Which is basically the the assumption of Kant, right? That human minds have this, or animal minds even have this unique ability to see things in a distorted fashion, but that somehow causal interaction would necessarily be direct. Uh, whereas for me, it's absolutely crucial that causal interaction also be a translation, and this is where people start thinking my philosophy is weird because they assume that only the mind can do that. that you know what rocks can't or fire can't even perceive so how could it perceive a distorted version of cotton Well that's not really my point my point is that it causally interacts with a distorted version of cotton Let's assume that there is no panpsychism let's assume that fire is just stupid Fire is utterly mindless and so is cotton I'm happy to assume that if you want to Still Fire is going to be interacting with cotton causally in a way that does not express the full reality of the cotton. Fire is not equipped to interact with all the features of the cotton. You know, humans are able to interact with its softness, with its whiteness. Uh, insects are able to react with its possible uh, role as a ho- uh, comfortable home for them on the interior of the cotton ball. The, f- the fire has no way of, of engaging with any of that. For The fire, we can assume it's simply something to do with the flammable features of the cotton. That are relevant to the fire and so causation already occurs at this level of distortion and people say that's panpsychism and I say no I am going to a level deeper than psyche here I'm trying to talk about what happens before psyche and then we need to rethink what psyche might be that's a huge philosophical problem um and so when people say I have no theory of the subject no it's just that I don't have a finished theory of the subject and when people claim they have a theory of the subject, all they really mean is that they're making a radical distinction between the subject and the object and listing all the honorific features that make subjects so great. Zizek, for example, or last night I was reading an article on Bright Dadi, and she criticizes us for this too. that We don't have a theory of the subject and she claims this leads us to dismiss postcolonial struggles and et cetera, feminist struggles, et cetera. No, it's just that I think any post-colonial or feminist struggles based on a modern idea of the subject are doomed to fail because that model of the subject is False. It assumes this radical difference in kind between the human mind or maybe the animal mind and everything else in the cosmos. So implausible. And the the one thing that scientism has going for it is that it tends to flatten all of that out. It's just that it mis-explains it all in terms of scientific language. I don't think you can explain the human mind in terms of scientific language, but I don't think you can explain fire and cotton in terms of scientific language completely either. That's the point. That's where scientism gets it wrong. That's where Brassier gets it wrong. My former colleague in, in speculative realism. Uh, but but uh, what the subject is is extremely complicated modern philosophy including contemporary philosophy has been absolutely horrible even on the difference between humans and animals um, people just assert commonsensical points and then somehow these commonsensical points are revered like Heidegger says humans are world forming animals are poor in world and the stone is worldless and everyone is in awe of this amazing lecture course by Heidegger he does a very good job with boredom in that course, but he really tells us nothing about animals that is not simply a commonsensical point. But somehow animals are conscious too, but less than humans. And then Heidegger says nothing at all about plants or fungi or viruses, which are a big issue now. And that's you, you, it's very hard to find a, a modern philosopher who really sheds any light on this at all. It's just a restatement of commonsensical points with a kind of ontological stamp of authority on them. Uh, lately, I've been working on Plessner, who's a little better on that. Helmut Plessner, forgotten uh, philosopher, near contemporary of Heidegger's. And he makes some progress on that. And he at least talks about plants, but I'm still not satisfied with, with his version of it for reasons I talk about in my coming article on him. Um, so we need to totally rethink the plant-animal-human distinction. And we need to not be so sure where the big dividing lines are. Why do we think that the human is the big jump? Why not primates more generally? Your monkeys are pretty smart. They're pretty incredible. The Great apes pretty incredible. Vertebrae are pretty amazing. Central nervous systems are pretty amazing. Why don't we make the philosophical cut at different points? Why do we assume it's us? I think this is a hangover from Christian theology that we've never really gotten out of, uh, that that somehow humans are made in the image of God and nothing else is. Plants are very interesting. Viruses should be the most interesting thing to us now, right at the borderline between life and non-life viruses being like seeds that only reproduce more seeds rather than reproducing mature organisms. So um, all of this needs to be radically rethought. And so when people say they have a theory of the subject and I don't, I'm usually not too impressed by what they're calling their theory of the subject. It's just some list of features of human uniqueness that are usually drawn from brainstorming commonsensical insights. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hold the line here and say we should approach the question of the subject very, very slowly. I do think that psychoanalysis is probably the way into this um, because psychoanalysis does touch on some things that make humans unique, but that's uh, to what extent psychoanalysis can apply to ontology, that's another question. I think right. uh, Lacan is sometimes used too quickly in favor of an idealism of Zizek's or Badiou's sort. I, I don't think that's the way to do it, but anyway, I went on too long there.
2: No, no, it's perfect. It's perfect. But I, I, I do want to get deeper into this point on vicarious causation, because one thing that goes throughout the book, this, this sort of strand of argumentation, where people are either, um, according to you, misunderstanding vicarious causation, or uh, m- misinterpreting it in various ways. So let's, let's get really deep into vicarious causation. So it, At the end of one of your talks that people can find on, on the internet, uh, Bryant comes up and he asks you directly about this point on vicarious causation. And he gives the example of a cat and a litter box. And he asks if he's diagramming it correctly. Right. And he draws, uh, the cat and the litter box and tries to draw a circle around them. And he says, okay, we've got a real cat and a real litter box. Where's the sensual object? The sensual object or the central object? The sen- sensual object is what I is what he
1: asks. The litter box is the, the sensual litter box is the one the cat encounters, and it remains the same despite the slightly shifting appearances of that litter box to the cat as the light changes or as the cat circles it or approaches it more closely.
2: Right. And then the litter box is encountering a sensual cat, right?
1: Yes. Although that doesn't always happen. It's it's an asymmetrical process. And so there are cases where where we encounter something and something doesn't encounter us in turn. In fact, that might be one of the key human abilities to encounter things unobserved, this kind of espionage that humans are able to to perform on other things. Mm -hmm. We're Mm -hmm. observing stars uh, that are dead. So those stars are not observing us. Those stars were dead before humans evolved. And so, but here we are observing those stars.
2: And so then, how does this fit in with your point on Latour, that a real object is always touching a sensual object, like a chain of magnets?
1: Very good. When we were talking about Joliot a while ago, first of all, I think Latour makes the biggest step forward in understanding causation ontologically in centuries, um, because he is the one who says, indirect causation is necessary, but it can't be some magical super entity like God or the human mind. It has to be a local mediator and a very specific local mediator. So he does that by saying Joliot is the mediator of politics and neutrons. I think where he drops the ball is in not exploring further the mediator between Joliot and politics or Joliot and neutrons, because obviously there's going to be a problem there as well. And it seems to me that he ends up with this kind of methodological solution that works for the social sciences, which is that you keep going until it becomes boring. So maybe nobody's interested in knowing how Joliot touches neutrons. How he uses the microscope. Maybe that's not an interesting question. So it becomes this kind of pragmatic standard for when you stop. Well, obviously for metaphysics, ontology, that doesn't work. You need to know how any contact is possible at all at the bottom. And uh, the only way to do that, and it so happens I can provide that solution, is you have two different kinds of objects. It's like with magnets, where you uh, you can touch a North Pole to a South Pole and make an infinite chain of magnets that way. But you'll never be able to touch two North Poles or two South Poles. So you need two different kinds of objects that are of opposite polarity. Uh, Only male and female are fertile, uh, barring advanced reproductive technologies. Uh, So it's a similar analogy. You need different kinds of objects to make contact in a way that makes sense in metaphysics. And in this case, it's the real object and the sensual objects. Two real objects cannot touch each other. Two sensual objects cannot touch each other. Why can two sensual objects not touch each other? Because they only exist in one entity's perceptions. So I have here the sensual water bottle and the sensual iPhone. Those don't really exist, except insofar as they exist for me. And so they are only linked through me. They're both parts of my experience. They're woven into this single texture of my experience. Um, That's okay. Then two real objects don't touch, because that's the core principle of Triple O, that one thing cannot touch another thing directly. Why not? Because, and this is a controversial argument, but I'm sure that it's right, one thing cannot be another object, which means that, let me back up here and give the example of Mayasu's solution and why I think it's wrong. Mayasu thinks that we get at the primary qualities of things by mathematizing them. So here I have this water bottle, drinking water, and I want to know it. That means mathematizing the water bottle so that I, I know all possible mathematical properties. Measu gets this from the Galilean revolution and Koyrewa's book on that and Baju of course is a mathemat- mathematizing philosopher. That's what they think. Okay, here's the problem with that. M- my perfect knowledge of the water bottle, assuming I can get it, assuming Mayasu is right, is not itself a water bottle, right? I can't drink the water bottle in my drink from the water bottle in my mind. I can't squish the plastic of it. And people laugh and say, of course not. That's a straw man. No one's saying that. Well, the reason no one's saying that is because no one is following out the logic of Mayasu's position. Mayasu goes on to say, I'm not a Pythagorean. I'm not saying that everything is mathematical. I'm just saying that our knowledge of things is mathematical. Okay, but then you've got to go a step further and ask, then what are things if they're not just mathematical? Mayasu's answer, and this is true of all such positions, is incredibly disappointing. It's that Water bottle is its mathematization in hearing and dead matter. And so what the mind is doing is extracting these forms and bringing them unaltered into the mind while leaving the matter behind. Okay, well, the problem is no one has ever seen dead matter. That's a kind of folk ontological category coming from the fact that we bump into stuff and it hurts. There's no reason a form couldn't hurt. I don't see why it has to be matter. Um, the right way to approach this problem is to see that you can't move a form without changing it. And Latour sees this. He says, no transport without transformation. Some of the scholastics were onto this in the Middle Ages. You can't move a good, because in, in in Aquinas, of course, that's what you do. You take the form out of the thing and bring it into the mind. Uh, but there are other ways of looking at this. And my way of looking at it is you cannot move a form without translating it into the mind. And so um, why did I bring this up? This had to do with uh, Latour.
2: Yeah, this this had to do with uh, how how two real objects
1: interact. Ah, uh, yes, thanks. That's right. And I was I was using Mayasu to explain why two real objects cannot interact directly. Right. Because there's always going to be a change of form. That's the core argument that Triple O makes. The form going from one place to its impact on another is going to be different from the form itself. Right. And so that's why no form of direct realism is impossible. And since that happens also at the causal level, that is why vicarious causation is necessary, because a thing can only affect another through a mediator. And of course, there are other theories that require mediators, but they tend not to be realist theories. For example, in Lacan, desire is the desire of the other. And so your desire is always mediated by by the other. Uh, But Lacan's not really a realist, despite his notion of the real. It's not really a real. It's just a, a trauma to the symbolic order. This is a realism where things actually causally interact with some residue that's not expressible in the interaction. So it's a pretty radical position uh, compared to what came before. So that's, that's one uh, thing vicarious causation is designed to solve. The fact that um, uh, a solution like Latour's that has only one kind of object cannot account for causation. And in order to account for causation, you need two different kinds of objects and you need a sensual object as a mediator between two real ones. And as you said, the object can also interact with me in turn. And in that case, it's encountering the sensual version of me. As I see it, those are two different interactions. Those are two parallel but different interactions. Um, Because, again, they're asymmetrical. They don't necessarily happen at the same time. Because we can think about dead things that can't perceive us anymore. And also, uh, my interaction with you is different from your interaction with me. Uh, They can have varying levels of impacts. There's always an asymmetry in the in the uh, causal sphere that way. Okay, so uh, um, I, I was greatly influenced by my years in Cairo. My 16 years teaching in Cairo, one of the great world cities, changed me forever. I doubt I changed Cairo much at all. It's been there for thousands of years since pharaonic times. So my being there was a rather minor event, but Cairo was a major thing for me. So that's another example of asymmetry.
2: Um, go ahead. Yeah, and this, this kind of gets into the question of... Um If we go back to the fire burning cotton how exactly the fire and the cotton interact right because if the if the fire is encountering a sensual form of the cotton and the cotton is encountering a central form of the fire nevertheless the fire is able to burn the cotton in some way
1: yes and the way this works in triple o is first of all the two entities in question have to form a unified third object in my essay time space essence and eidos i talk about a plane crash where Effectively, the two, two planes crash in midair. They become a single entity for a, briefly, very briefly. Why is that important? Because once you have a single entity, you have the fact that a single entity can have retroactive effects on its own parts. There are countless examples of this. I moved to Los Angeles. I take on a kind of Los An- more of a Los Angeles personality and lifestyle. It's, it's inevitable. The city is set up in such a way that you, you become more relaxed and more outdoorsy. Um, so... Being part of the larger object Los Angeles does have retroactive effects on me, just like joining Cairo did. And then in the case of a a physical interaction, what happens is that then the two things unify very briefly, but then they detach again, but they detach in changed form through those retroactive effects of the crash object or the Harmon plus Los Angeles object. So if I move out of Los Angeles, there's going to be a lasting impact on me, just as there was a lasting Cairo impact on me. Some of it for good, some of it not, not so good, such as the habit of shisha smoking. That I picked. I'd never been a smoker, but I picked up this horrible sh- shisha or hookah smoking habit in Cairo that is hard to beat even now. Um, so that's, that's how the interaction happens. That's how the effect happens, is, is two independent objects uh, making direct contact through a central mediator. They end up forming a third object, however odd this third object may seem. That object has retroactive effect on its own pieces, and then sometimes the pieces redetach and go their separate ways. Uh, so uh, did that answer your question? Because I had one other thing I wanted to talk. Okay. One of the, probably the most frequent objection I hear to the theory of vicarious causation is, um, interaction isn't indirect, it's direct, but partial. And that has a a lot of common sense going for it, right? That, that, uh, I look at an apple and I'm seeing 42% of it or something and the other 58% is withdrawn. Even Wolfendale says something similar. He says that withdrawal is only uh, quantitative, not qualitative, which means maybe Socrates knows 10 things about virtue and there's another million he doesn't know, but he could learn them. Okay. There are some problems with that view though. Uh, first of all, if you make contacts with part of an apple with your eyes and your hands, how does the, that part of the apple that you touch relate to the whole of the apple? That's a philosophical problem in its own right. The fact that you touch a part of it doesn't mean that that part also is touching the whole. Well, somehow that's already done because we know the parts of a thing must touch the whole because it helps compose it. But these critics haven't really worked out how that happens. They haven't worked out that vicarious causation has to happen there as well, that a thing doesn't have its own parts directly. A thing has its parts indirectly. And uh, um, also, they're kind of lazily relying on this folk ontology of physical objects that your skin is somehow touching 28% of the apple. That means you're touching 28% of the apple. And since we can see people touching stuff all the time, therefore vicarious causation must be false. No, all we see is that we are making contact with sensual objects. We have no real theory of how those sensual objects make contact with the real object, or at least we had no such theory until triple O appeared and tried to start making a theory of it. So you, you can't really quantify as a percentage the amount of, of uh, a thing we're able to see, because all we're seeing is the sensual aspects and the sensual aspects in some sense have zero connection with the real object. They have to be indirectly connected to it. So uh, there's a huge metaphysical problem here that people are blinded to by the fact that materialism, scientific materialism is essentially the folk ontology of recent centuries. They get mad when I say folk ontology, because they like to use that against us They like to say everything other than science is folk ontology or folk psychology. No materialism is the biggest folk ontology. There is one thing bumps into another one and moves it. uh, That's philosophically opaque. Science doesn't need to, to examine the metaphysics of that perhaps, because all it needs to do is measure and identify subcomponents and talk about fields and talk about, you know, the way these things interact. They don't need to talk about the metaphysical problem or ontological problem of how things can interact at all. And, Some angry critics will say that's useless for science. Well, first of all, science, who says science gets a monopoly on talking about the inanimate world? Different disciplines can talk about different objects. An anthropologist can talk about uh, Germany differently from how a linguist talks about Germany or how a philosopher talks about Germany. I say this because you're an anthropologist in Leipzig. Uh, Psychoanalysis, in Macomb's version, the same object can be real, imaginary, or symbolic. The same object can move through three registers. Latour has fifteen modes, actually fourteen, I think, but he calls them fifteen. So um, there's n- there's no particular reason why the current division of labor has to exist forever. That that um, uh, science gets to talk about hard inanimate objects, and the humanities get to talk about moods and emotions and feelings and poems and things. No, there, there's there's a way for philosophy to talk about inanimate objects that is different from the way science talks about inanimate objects because science doesn't care about problems like indirect causation. However, that doesn't mean it's always going to be the case. Let's not forget that Einstein profited greatly from Kant and Mach in formulating the theory of relativity. Leibniz is in there somewhere too. Uh, who's to say whether vicarious causation might not be crucial for some physicists of 40 or 50 years from now? We're not supposed to be limping along after the current consensus state of science, right? Science is always supposed to be pushing the envelope, and risking very daring thoughts that are against the consensus. And uh, a couple of physicists have said they want philosophy to be of more help in this. Um, uh, Lee Smolin has said this, and uh, why why am I blanking on the name of the Italian guy? Carlo Um, Rovelli. Carlo Rovelli, thank you. Memory becomes a real problem when you hit 50. (laughs) Names that you've said thousands of times suddenly become elusive. Carlo Rovelli and Lee Smolin have both said this, that they're tired of philosophers trying to explain what scientists have already done. Actually, according to uh, Imre Lakatos, the philosopher of science, that's the very definition of a degenerating research program, trying to explain things that have already been done. What you need to do is go forward and talk about things that haven't been done. And besides, science is in a crisis of its own. At least physics is in a crisis of its own. They can't unify relativity and quantum theory. There's no theory of quantum gravity, that is. And they can't explain dark matter or dark energy. And so this is not the time for physics to be lecturing anybody about not having a complete theory of anything. Um, Physics has the advantage of being very exact and being able to experimentally test things, which philosophy doesn't have. But philosophy has its own advantages. We can can test a much larger number of cases because we use thought experiments. We also have a very proud tradition behind us, and we should stop being... Sniveling, insecure, weaklings cowering before the sciences, asking them to praise us for for not transgressing their their views. One, one thing that makes me sick is the spectacle of, of philosophers bragging about how they majored in physics or bragging about how they're still able to read mathematics articles. Because the su- that's great if you can do that, right? But the subtext there is that people who like poetry are, are wussies, right? That somehow that's that's soft, that's not worthy of a philosopher. And I won't name any names here, but some of my rivals in contemporary philosophy like to do this is to claim that the humanities are somehow soft and weak. Well, yeah, you don't respect Freud and Lacan, You don't respect, uh, uh, Shakespeare. You don't respect, I mean, there's so much good stuff going on in the humanities. Kant, um, Leibniz, all of these people deal with entities rigorously in their own way. It's not the exact way of the natural sciences, but, uh, Philosophers have become too insecure. And one of the ways to change that is to reassert our right to talk about stuff that's not about the thought world relation, but is actually just in the worlds.
2: Professor Harmon, I could talk to you for hours and hours about this book, and we've only just talked about one chapter. Ah, there's so much more in this book. You have a response to Peter Wolfendale's object-oriented philosophy that I'm sure many people are going to be interested in. You have a response to Peter Grattan and his, his book on speculative realism. You touch on Stephen Mulhouse's critique of Triple uh, O that he gave a couple years ago. This is a really wonderful book. I can only urge people to check it out. Uh, I have one final question, which is tradition here on the new books network, which is, can you tell us what you're working on now?
1: Usually on too many things at once. Um, I can tell you what my open book contracts are right now. How about that? I mean, there's always articles come requests for articles come in weekly almost. And I have to try to respond to those requests. The reason that I try not to, say, well, okay. Sometimes I say no, uh, but I try not to say no, uh, Because if you're asked to write an article about something, you have to think about something that you might not have thought about otherwise. So I was asked to write an article for a book on maritime archaeology a few months ago. And what do I know about that? But, uh, you know, usually if you just do a little research, you can start to see how your work fits into a topic that you don't know that well. And I came up with a pretty good article called The Shipwreck of Theseus that'll be published next year. And I unified the old Ship of Theseus paradox with uh, Sarah Rich's very nice book on underwater archaeology. Of shipwrecks. Uh, Sometimes I'm saying no to um, chapters for edited collections. And the reason for that is I find that people don't read those as much as as journal articles. So often, unless I owe somebody a favor or something, I'll say no to the the edited collections, but unless it's a topic that really interests me. Uh, As for books, the open contracts I have right now, um, one is for another book for Penguin for a different imprint, the Allen Lane imprint called Waves and Stones, which is about the relation between the continuous and the discrete in uh, all different fields of human inquiry, whether whether the debate over punctuated equilibrium and evolution, uh, the debate over whether or not history moves in sudden revolutionary jumps or whether it's more gradual, um, mathematical problems about the continuum, uh, and then of course philosophical ones with Aristotle being at the forefront there. That's one of my live contracts. Um, Another one on Latour's book, uh, Modes of Existence. And then that one's several years overdue now. I just haven't had the time to sit down and think about it the way I want. And then the other one is that uh, I promised to write a book for the series I co-edit with Latour at Open Humanities Press, the new metaphysics series. And that, that, my sense of that has been evolving over the years. So eventually, I settled on it being a response to Badiou and Zizek being two important contemporary philosophers who are subject-oriented rather than object-oriented. But I also want to work Lacan into that now because I've Lacan's been my reading interest for the past couple of years. Devouring as much Lacan as I can. And so I want to get my foot into that debate somehow. I'm also, by the way, working on a um, co-authored book with Chris Whitmore, the archaeologist at Texas Tech, which is about the differing uh, senses of time and archaeology and philosophy. And we, the bulk of that book is done. Um, we haven't decided on where we'll try to publish it yet, but it's been a pleasure to work with Chris on that
2: i very much look forward to reading all of these texts and maybe we could have you back on the show sure and by the way architecture and
1: objects is coming out in the spring from minnesota that's a follow-up to art and objects which was published with Polity. i teach in an architecture school and again i like landing in situations where i know nothing and having to build my knowledge from the ground up architecture has been a case of that i've been teaching there for this is my sixth year at CyArk, and uh, i've been in the arch in the library at CyArk a lot learning about architecture And so take a look and see what you think when Architecture and Objects comes
2: out in the spring. Yeah, excellent, excellent. So the book once again is Skirmishes, published in 2020 with Punctum Books. Professor Graham Harman, thank you so much for your time. Thanks a lot, I appreciate it, Adam.